Today's scripture comes from Exodus 21 to 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on this children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You may be seated. And as you see, let me pray for us. Father, we pray now that as we fix our eyes upon the words you have so graciously given us, Lord, that you would use them to, to transform us, to, to shape the way we, we live, and Lord, as we'll see this morning, the way we rest. God, uh, for actual heart change to happen, uh, we need your spirit to come now. So Father, would you so graciously um, do this transforming work, and do it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. If you're new or visiting for the first time, great to have you here. If you do have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, We're going to be looking at the fourth commandment this morning. We have been going through uh, a series in the Ten Commandments. So thus far, we've heard from the first commandment that we should not have any other gods beside Yahweh, the, the one true God, because he is alone worthy of praise and trust and our worship. We, we should not make images of this one true God, says the second command, because images, whether physical or even mental images of God, fail to rightfully and adequately articulate who this true God is. And then, and then last week, we worked our way through the third commandment, that we should be cautious of how we speak about this one true God. And more than that, we should make sure that what we say about God and how we live our lives actually come into uh, alignment. And and so what we've seen thus far, working our way through these commandments, is that uh, these commandments, in a way, serve as a mirror for us. So so it's one thing to have a conscience, to to feel whether or not what we're doing or not doing is is right or wrong, but, but we can suppress that. And so what the commandments do is they, they serve as a mirror or, or kind of this, this clarity guide to ensure, hey, am I actually obeying God? Am, am I following him? Am, am I living up to his standards? But, but then that means also, secondly, the commandments are not an end in and of themselves. The, the commandments point us to our need for a savior. We, we need someone to actually live out the commandments on our behalf. We need Jesus, as we've seen. 
But the commandments, as we'll, I want us to see this morning, do actually one more thing. The commandments actually instruct us how to live a life of flourishing. The, the commandments are intended so that a society might actually thrive. You, you see, God doesn't arbitrarily give us these commands. He's not going, let me think of some random rules, and hopefully they're a little difficult, dissatisfying, and, and you know, if I could just give this to a people and, and they obey them and live up to them, then I know that they will truly love me. That's not the way God is ar- are working here. They're, these commands aren't arbitrary. No, the, the, the reality is, is the God who gives us the commands is the same God who created the world. And so God understands how this world ought to operate. These commands are intended to help us live in alignment with his design. You want to know how to best use a product? Talk to the one who designed it, who created it, who imagined it. And so, so that applies to all of the commandments, that they're intended to help us thrive, But I think we particularly see that in the fourth command. The fourth command is a command to rest. And it's given for our benefit. So I want to look under, uh, look at rest under three headings this morning. The necessity of rest, the provider of rest, and then thirdly, the practice of rest. Let me read the fourth commandment one more time for us. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The the Sabbath, uh, at its most uh, basic level, is a day to stop working. The the word Sabbath, if you take the root word, it actually means to cease. There should be one day of the week, God is telling Israel here, that they should stop working, not just them, but everyone within the entire nation, regardless of social status, and they should pause working for the sake of resting. And I think if there is ever a time that we need that command, it's today. When is the last time someone asked you how you were doing and you said, I wish my life could be busier? <laughs> it's just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, Tim Chester, he gives this diagnostic tool. He asks these questions. And he says, look, if you answer this way to any of the questions, maybe you should evaluate whether or not you're living an, an overly busy life. So he, he gave these questions. Uh, they're this. One, do you check your work emails and phone messages at home? Are you serious? Have you been around much this millennium? Number two, has anyone ever said to you, I didn't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are? Of course, he says, and I'm glad they have the decency to respect my time. 
Thirdly, do your family or friends complain about not getting time with you? Well, they're still learning that quality time is more important than quantity time. That that one hurts. Do you often exceed the speed limit while driving? Depends on whether or not I'm trying to eat french fries at the same time. I cut someone off to get into McDonald's this week. I don't know what that says about me. Number five, do you have enough time to pray? Well, I'm more of a pray continually kind of person. Or number six, do you eat together as a family or household at least once a day? More or less, when one person is eating, someone else is usually in the house at the same time. Honestly, I suck at this. Sometimes you preach sermons and you have this, a little bit of experience or we've wrestled through this. This week, I'm like wrestling through this heart. Like I'm, I'm reading those questions and I'm going, I, I need to actually evaluate what's going on in my life. Um, work analysts, experts, I don't know, whatever their title would be, a number of years ago predicted uh, that we would have a 22-hour work week. They were actually worried we would have too much free time on our hands. And instead, today we're working more than any other society has in the history of the world. Except Norway, they're slackers. They work 14 weeks less than average than we do. So if you want some rest, go to Norway. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is who we are, constantly busy. And I think, I think some of this is, is due to kind of these societal pressures we're facing. So I think there's a number of different things affecting why we're so busy. I think one of the major reasons, though, is just the amount of competition that there is. Right? There's only so many good jobs. P- prices are, seem to be rising faster than our salaries are. And so really, if we want to survive. We got, we got to add more work to our lives. We got to stay busy. We're, we're not passing that competitive nature onto our kids, right? So it feels like our kids have to discover like a new element of the periodic table and serve at the old folks home and be a triple threat in sports just to make it into university these days. So we, ha- we have all this, this competition going on and then you add technology, which I think only just kind of stokes the, the flames of, of competition. I can always see who, who's growing, who's getting better, how people are thriving in this world around me. It's constantly this reminder I could be, I could be doing more. Technology basically puts us in touch with people, so we're always available. It puts us in touch with work. I can never stop working. I can work here. I can work there. And so I work all the time. And really, what, what this is doing is, is destroying us. Uh, physically, all this extra work has caused an increase in stress, decreases our immune system, increases obesity, increases blood pressure, insomnia, muscle tension. And then that's just the physical side of things. Mentally, we are more irritable. We're less patient. People go through burnout, panic attacks, anxiety disorders, and struggle with depression because of it. And so, so one person, uh, one pastor, he asked this, what do we lose when we lose Sabbath? He says we lose grace. This, this command is a gift of grace to us. What does it say about God 
that one of his commandments is to actually rest. Like, like what, is this, what does this say of our incredible God? That, that he goes, you, you know what? I would just like you to take a day off. Like, like we have sometimes this, I, this thought as a society or as a culture that God's this curmudgeon grump who's just trying to push his thumb down upon us and, and make us miserable in life. Like, who here doesn't want a boss who says, you know what, you just take today off. Like, no one's going, oh, what a grumpy boss I have. This, this is who our God is. This, is. this is his gracious nature to us, that he command us to rest. The scholars have, have been trying to uh, think through and trying to discover where this notion of taking a day off from work actually comes from. So they, they actually wondered whether or not there was a, a culture or society before the nation of Israel that, that was given this command. And you know what they found? Nothing. The, the, the very first notion of not working for one day of the week originates in the Bible. Uh, our days, okay, so our day is based on the rotation of the Earth's axis. Uh, our concept of month is largely based on the lunar cycle. Our, our concept of the year deals with the rotation of the earth around the sun. This concept of a seven-day week, it's not grounded in anything. There's, it's not based on science. It, it comes from God. God invented this concept of a week, of seven days. He, he says, look, I worked for six days to create the world, and then on the seventh day, I rested. And now he says, you should follow my pattern. See, this concept of, of rest, taking a day off of work, totally foreign, did not exist in the surrounding natures of Israel. So, so if you're from one of these surrounding nations, you walk into Israel on a Saturday, that was the Sabbath, uh, totally would have freaked you out. Everyone's just hanging out on their front porch, drinking lemonade, hang, not working in the fields. And, and, and you see, you that, that's not the way it worked for you. Their gods, all the other nations' gods, their gods demanded that you work every single day of the week. See, gods could take a rest back then, but gods rested because he got their people to work for him. So, so, so you weren't allowed to rest. If you, if you didn't work, you felt like the gods wouldn't bless you. You had to, you had to satisfy your God by working. But that's not true of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. Look, it's still actually strange to walk into Israel today. My, my wife and I, uh, we visited Israel a number of years ago. We stayed in this Jewish hotel. We were like on the 20th floor of this high rise. And, um, on Saturday, we realized the elevator doesn't let you push the floor you want to go on. So we're on the 20th floor, and the way this works, it just goes down one, then it stops, then it goes down one, then it stops, then it goes down one, and it stops. This is called the Sabbath elevator. We're on the 20th floor. We're walking to breakfast, I guess. Get to the main floor, and the elevator's still on floor 15. It was, it was strange back then. But this is what the Israelites understood. Yes, absolutely, they've butchered it to some extent. They've, they've created this legalism around it. But what they understood is that to rest is actually to, 
be part, is, it's, it's very, it's our essence of being a human. Rest is ingrained into us. We, we need it. But here is the thing. Um, I think there's a deeper problem at play here. See, I think um, our busyness, yes, absolutely a consequence of these external factors. But there's actually something else going in our heart. There's something internal, I think, that is also driving us to live busy, work-filled lives. Um, Tim Kreider, he writes for the New York Times. He wrote this in a famous article a number of years ago. He's not a Christian, but I think he hit the nail on the head. He says this, It is almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. They're busy because of their, get this, own ambition or drive or anxiety. Because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. You see, he's saying there's something, something in us that, that's driving us to stay active and, and busy. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Crazy Busy, uh, I think the, head, the subtitle is a, a mercifully short book for a very big problem. I encourage it to you. If you live a busy life, it's not that long, so hopefully it doesn't make you that much more busy. But he, he basically lists what he calls these killer P's. He, he says, think, think, maybe these are some of the reasons why you're so busy. Uh, he gives a number of them. I'll, let me just give you eight. Number one, people-pleasing. We say yes to everyone because fear, we fear disappointing others and we want their approval. We want them to like us. Which of these applies to you? Two, possessions. We just think if we had more stuff, more things, nicer things, that thing, that house, we would be finally satisfied and we find the peace we're looking for. We thirdly want to prove something to ourselves or to others, to our mom, to our dad to our friends. Fourthly, we might want pats on the back. We want someone to come along and praise us. Number five, we seek pity. We want someone to feel bad for how hard we're having to work, which is just another form of pride because it just means that we think we deserve better than that. Number six, we want power. We think if we work, that means we'll be able to stay in control of our life and our outcome. Seven, we want prestige. One day we think we'll arrive one day I will be a somebody. One day I will matter. Or number eight, we want to give penance. We feel guilty maybe for something we've done in the past, and so we just feel like if we can work enough, we can make up for it. What's, what's driving you? What is it internally that is causing you to live such a busy life? Uh, Hollywood will make a movie about anything, and it turns out they made a movie about the Sabbath. Uh, Chariots of Fire, actually, is about the Sabbath. It's good for two things, the music, classic, 
And also this one quote, which pastors use all the time, so forgive me if you've heard this before. Um, but basically, the, the story of chariots of, follow, uh, chariots of Fire follows two athletes, two, two sprinters. And, and it turns out that the gold medal race is going to occur on a Sunday, and one of the sprinters is a devout Christian and decides that he's not going to run on the Sabbath, on Sunday for him. Uh, and the other athlete, though, his name is Harold Abrams, he does decide to run. And his reason is this. He says, look, I'm running a 100-meter race, and I quote, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Can't take that day off. My whole identity is wrapped up on how I do in that race. It's based on what I accomplish for myself, he says. Which means this. Um, it's not going to be enough to actually just take a vacation. Right? So that's where Tim Kreider, the author of that New York Times article, and I disagree. His solution to the problem is basically you just have to force yourself to take time off. Just, just force it. The problem with that, though, is even if I'm not working, it doesn't change or it doesn't make my motives and my desires go away. Right? So internally, I'm still struggling with those same driving factors. Right? So I can, I, I know this. I feel this. I, I can be sitting on the beach having just a, a very relaxing time physically. And internally, I'm just feeling like maybe, maybe I should just go home. There's that project I need to get done. And I, I feel like it, there's this antsiness to me. My soul isn't at rest, right? But I feel like if I can't look back on the day and, and see something that I've accomplished, I, just, I don't feel like I've done enough. I don't feel satisfied with myself. See, we, what we really need is we need not just physical rest, we need soul rest. We need someone to approve of us before the race, so to speak. We, we need someone to validate us and love us and affirm us regardless of how well we do, regardless of how much we do or of how little we do. That's what we need. That's the deep innermost rest that we were made for, a, a soul rest. And so secondly, then, where do we get that? Number two, the provider of rest. If you have your Bible open, you can flip to the New Testament, um, to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. I'll put it on the screen behind us. But here is Jesus and what he's up to on the Sabbath. Mark 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You couldn't, you couldn't pluck grains of wheat back then. And so he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He's saying, look, I have precedence for what I'm doing here. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. And then he says this, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, again, he entered the synagogue and a man there was with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You could, you could help someone if they were dying, but a withered hand doesn't count as dying. So they're trying to test Jesus again. Verse 3, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, it is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around with them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath? I think what Jesus is communicating is that, one, I created the Sabbath. He's making himself equal with God who created the world and gave us that seven-day rhythm. I think he's saying when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is pointing to me. And I think, though, maybe most importantly of all, when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the one who truly gives rest. True rest is found in Jesus. So, please follow this thought with me. Okay, you miss this, you miss the whole sermon. Why does, why does God command Israel to have a Sabbath day in Exodus? Right, he says, because in six days I created the world and then the seventh day I rested. Now, now God's not tired. It's not, not why he needed that seventh day of rest. What, what he's trying to do is, is communicate something about what he's just accomplished, right? So he creates the heavens and he says, it's good. He creates the earth. He says, it's good. He creates the plants. They're good. The sea, that's also good. I create dogs and animals. They're good. I create cats. So-so. Then he creates humans. He looks over everything and he says, after he's done making everything, it's very good. And then he goes, now I'm going to rest. What God is doing is communicating that he is fully satisfied in what he has just accomplished. He, he's pleased with his work. There's nothing more that he needed to create. He, he's delighting in it. He says, that's good just the way it is. I'm satisfied with what I've done, and so, so I'm going to rest now. Now, fast forward to Jesus. Jesus lives a sinless life, right? He lives the perfect life we are all called to live. He obeys the commandments perfectly. And then, and then the father looks at him and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus goes to the cross. He dies there bearing our wrath. He's not dying for his own sin. He has no shortcomings in his life. He dies for our sin. He pays our, the penalty we deserve. He acts as our substitute and he's hanging on the cross. And what does he say moments before he dies? He says, the same thing God said in Genesis. God said in Genesis, it is finished, and so I rest, 
Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's just about to die, and he says, John 19.30, it is finished. That happens on a Friday. He dies next day. It's the Sabbath. Jesus, by dying on the cross in that way, declaring that it has been done, is saying, look, I have done everything that I've needed to do. I am fully satisfied with my work, with my life and death. And he's saying, look, if we turn to him, we can now experience that same finished rest. So so Hebrews chapter 4, it puts it this way. Please hear this. Hebrews 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. When, when, when we turn to Jesus... And we say, okay, I'm done trying to earn my approval in this world. When we we look to Jesus and say, okay, I'm not going to try to make it on my own. Instead, I'm going to trust in his finished work. Then the author of Hebrews says, we enter into that same rest. God looks at us now if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and says, I am fully satisfied. You are my son or my daughter with whom I, I am well pleased. You don't have to earn your standing in this world anymore. And so we can rest. There's nothing more to prove. Because in Jesus it was finished. Which means all of a sudden, when we do work, he doesn't carry this extra burden of carrying kind of my value in life. Work can just be work. Work can just be something I enjoy and do for the sake of accomplishing something, but my whole being and value doesn't depend on how well I do or don't do. See, J.D. Greer, he puts it this way. He says, apart from Christ, you will work even when you are resting. With Christ, you can rest even while you are working. See, after uh, Jesus, um, people no longer began worshiping on a Saturday. They changed that day to Sunday. Now, part of that was because Sunday was the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. So they said, okay, this is the Lord's day. We're going to devote this day to the Lord. But, but there's also some more added significance to that. See, um, Saturday was actually considered the seventh day. Sunday was the first day. So beforehand, the way Israel thought it was, well, we have to work to earn our rest. Now Christians are declaring, because of what Jesus has done, we actually begin our weeks with rest. The, the first day is a day of rest, and the rest of the week we work out of that rest that has been given to us. So it doesn't matter whether I crush that presentation or I bomb does it matter if I, I fail to take my kids to all their extracurricular activities? Does it matter if my house is messy or I didn't cook that perfect meal or I didn't host that family the way I wanted to? None of that changes the way God looks at us. With Jesus, it is finished. 
our identity, our salvation, our security, our future, our worth, and our purpose is all given as a gift by him. And so our souls find rest. So thirdly then, practically, what does this mean? The, the practice of rest. If, if Jesus has really secured this, this rest for our souls, how do we live into that? How, how might that affect the way we orient ourselves in this seven-day week of ours? Um, something we believe as Christians is that we are actually no longer bound to keep the Sabbath. We, we don't have to be legalistic like Israel was back then. Right, so the, the, the author of Romans, Paul, he says this in Romans 14. He says, Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Uh, each one, he says, should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's a matter of conscience. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter anymore. Saturday, Sunday, you can actually work on a Sunday. You're not sinning. The point is, though, he's saying, he do, he's doing something out of a desire to honor the Lord. So, so there's things, I think, there's principles we can still get from this fourth command that might shape the way we live. So, so let me give you four things. Again, these aren't rules. They're suggestions. They're things that you might consider. Firstly, let me give you four things. We should spend time worshiping. How should we spend our time, number one, time worshiping? So look, look at uh, verse 8 again of Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. See, it's um, true rest doesn't just come with leisure. It actually comes when we orient our lives properly towards God. So it's intended to be a holy day, a holiday. That's where we get the word from. It's a day set apart to remember and commemorate. If, if we don't begin with worship, then we'll all of a sudden forget that true rest has already been given to us. If we forget worship, we'll, we'll once again get back into this rut of trying to earn our standing, our worth for ourselves. And so, so the author here is saying, look, you, you need to orient your lives towards God. You need to worship. You need to fix your eyes on him. So, so practically, what might that look like? It might mean actually reading our Bibles on a day that we decide, maybe more than the other days of the week. Read your Bible, read a good Christian book, gather together, sing praises of worship to God, have other people sing over you and remind you of the truths of the gospel. We're going to sing in a moment, he will hold me fast. There is nothing I need to do in order to secure God's love, he is going to do it. Sing that over the people around you. And then maybe put your phone away. Don't, don't let uh, your phone distract you from the things that God wants to do in your heart, in your life. That, that moment you feel convicted, all of a sudden you, you pick up your phone and, and let that thought or feeling go away. Maybe put away your phone. We need to spend time worshiping. We need to spend time with God. Secondly, 
we need to spend time working. Uh, Verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. See, the, the, the command to keep the Sabbath holy is not just a command orienting our lives around one day. It actually affects us the other six days of the week as well. To, to truly rest, if we're going to take that time off that we need to, it, well, it means we're going to be grinding the rest of the week. It means hard work, which means maybe on Friday, Let's say there's just a couple more things you still need to get done. Maybe it means you stay and work for in a couple extra hours. So that's Saturday or so that's Sunday, you can rest and put away your work. If, if we're going to rest, we have to spend our time working hard the rest of the week. Look, work is not a fall, a consequence of the fall, right? God, God, work existed in the garden. God, God gave Adam and Eve the command to work the garden, but but work had its place. It was accompanied with rest. So practically, look, I know there are some of you who maybe are in a new job. You're, You're beginning a new set of studies. You're heading down a different career. You're either beginning a startup. You're in a practicum or residency of some sort. There are seasons where you are just going to have to put in hours upon hours of work. And, and I think that's okay. But I encourage you, have someone to hold you accountable in that. Ask someone to say, okay, look, I'm going to be working hard for the next year, let's say. But then after that, call me out. Make, make sure I, I'm... Putting, I'm drawing that line between work and rest. Let me, don't let me get caught up in working for my life. So anyways, we, if we're going to rest well, it also means we have to spend time working. One author or one writer, he says this, avoid carefully the half work, which is half rest, and which is no good for anything. Christians, as Christians, we are hardworking people. And we're hard-resting people. So thirdly, Time resting looks like time playing. Um, we should be the best partiers as Christians. <laughs> Amen. Right? We should, we should play. We should enjoy what God has given us in this world. So just as God rested on the seventh day, looked at his creation and said, I'm just delighting in this, he now invites us to do the same thing. To, to rest and enjoy the good gifts that he has given us. There should be rhythms of play and just going all out in our life. So for my family, this looks like Christmas and Easter. We party it up as a family. We don't hold back when it comes to food and what we do and the activities we engage in. We, and, and then Sunday becomes kind of like a, a mini day of party. A mini party day. So Sunday, we give our kids sugar cereal, probably because we're not teaching in Sunday school. Uh, Sunday, we don't say, no, we try not to say no to our kids. Sunday, we do all of our most fun, best activities. Sunday, we eat out. Right? So there, there should just be these moments, these rhythms of our life where we just fill it with play. Um, to rest does not necessarily mean doing nothing. 
right? Resting does not mean necessarily burning less calories. Resting can just mean doing something different. So you're a landscaper, probably don't mow the lawn on a Sunday or whatever day is your day off, right? That's not enjoyable unless you, unless you love the smell of grass clippings or something. And you're like, just can't wait to mow my lawn. Anyway, then go do that. But if it feels laborsome to you, toilsome, wearisome to, to go and mow your lawn and you're a landscaper, don't do that. I, I'm at my desk most of the week. I'm like, yes, I want to get sweaty and mow my lawn and pull weeds. That just gives me life. Do, do something different. Do something that you enjoy. We should enjoy time playing. And lastly, we should spend time serving. Spend time serving. So verse 10 says this, But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. This command was clear. Look, it's not just that you get a day off, but all your other minions work for you and further you along. No. Everyone gets a rest. You're not, you're not trying to further yourself, and you're not letting others further you. And then Jesus actually takes it one step further. What does he do on the Sabbath? What do we, what do we read in Mark? He actually serves others on the Sabbath. It's not just that you don't let others serve you. Actually, you go out of your way to serve them. See, when we serve others, it's one of the best ways we step into the rest God has given us. Because what we're essentially saying when we help others instead of ourselves is that, look, God's got me. I don't need to work for myself right now. I'm going to let him take care of me. I'm secure in him. And you know what? All that energy, instead of pouring it into my own life, I'm going to pour it into the life of someone else. That's actually living into the rest God gives us by serving others. So, so practically, you're an employer, Maybe give people a day off. Maybe pay them well so that they feel like they can enjoy that day off and they don't need to work another job. Maybe make a meal, have someone over. Your mom, you cook three meals a day. Dads, maybe that's the day we're cooking and serving our family that way. Maybe babysit someone else's kids so they can go on a date. But look, we should be looking around us and saying, how can I help others rest? Because all the rest has already given to me. I experience not just physical rest, but a soul rest. Let me close with this. In Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, he says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me pray. Father, I, um, I confess that I struggle to rest. I struggle to really believe that it has all been finished in the work of Jesus. God, I pray, would you help me and help us to actually trust you God, to, to see ourselves with the same eyes in which you see us as your sons and your daughters with whom you are well pleased. Father, I pray that we would live into that rhythm of rest, 
Would we instead use our time to serve others, to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us, and to praise you? And so we want to praise you right now, Jesus. As we turn to sing, as we turn to sharing communion together, Father, would you receive all the praise, all the worship. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.